0: The trenches every day cause I stay on my grind. If they hate the elephant, cause they won't stop my shine. See me run into that money, I just won't mine. No, I don't waste no time. No, I don't waste no time. Whoa, 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 I don't waste no time. Welcome back in the Feed Your Brain Podcast. My name is Max Elster, and I'm happy to have another guest in the show. It's Rod Dowler. Um, shortly for all the listeners, um, Rod has um led KPMG's. European technology uh, practice in, in 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 different zones in different areas and um, has been um, out of KPMG now to really focus on more cultural projects that interested him um, after his, his retirement. But um, in addition, he started being involved in the early days of public policy practices. In 1994, he also set up his own consultancy. Ran it for 15 years successfully invested in different companies um also became the the CEO of Zoom F uh, who was uh, which was more or less the first uh, search engine in the UK and was also sold um yeah almost 10 year more than 10 years ago and um is now the CEO of the industry forum and a board member of a startup that tries to um tries to help the process of or, uh, slowing down the process of Alzheimer uh, it's called Agile and Bio uh, bio uh, also very interesting he's still even though after his retirement he's still active like um, other people's are in 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 in, in their full time work environment so i'm very happy to talk about leadership to talk about trust to talk about building teams and to talk about his experience on life and um, his outlook in the future welcome rod to the podcast
1: <laughs> thanks max I, I i should correct you i i don't now believe in retirement i i tried to retire several times and i don't think it worked <laughs> and and now kpmg doesn't re- refer to me as a retired partner they re- refer to me as a former partner you see so and, and and also the government in the uk is fixing up things so nobody can ever retire you have to go right. on working. So I'm, I'm quite happy about that, actually. <laughs> yeah,
0: that's that's great. I mean, a lot of people, when they as soon as they come out, or as soon as they join the entire retirement space, they somehow don't have a passion for topics anymore. And I think that's very sad. And you're a good example for um, still uh, building a passion like you are at KPMG, right? I mean, it's it's not really a different uh, perspective now, as it seems like.
1: No, it's not. And I still, you know, I, I still... I, socialize with my friends from KPMG and work with them and they just they did a write-up my career in LinkedIn this week which is embarrassingly complimentary if anyone (laughs) looks at LinkedIn I haven't shown it to my wife yet but um, I'm I'm forced to it anyway to be active because my wife's a painter and Mm -hmm. painters never retire so she disappears every day to her studio and I have to find things to do.
0: Right. I mean, uh, it, it seems like um, you are very passionate about all the things you do, and you probably you have always been very passionate. What do you think? Where, the, where does that come from? Have you always been very passionate about building things, leading teams, and um, seeing a little more into the future, or how, how has that evolved in, in, your, in your life? I think I'm, I'm kind of interested in solving
1: problems, and I'm interested in the future. Um I think, actually, the financial crash of 2008 brought me down to earth, and uh, I kind of sold up all my investments um, because it was very difficult to raise money for um, companies are operating in the property sphere then. Mm-hmm. And I read lots of books on economics, and I was absolutely astounded. Well, what a mess it is. <laughs> um, so <laughs> so I've, I've written a number of – I work with the, um, the LSE uh, mm-hmm. business. Um, review. I've written a number of um, articles and, uh, for them. And in 2011, I wrote a, a letter to the Financial Times saying that um, economics was such a mess that no more economists should be uh, recruited <laughs> for positions until they sorted it out. And wow. it should be treated like a failing school. And um, you should appoint a physicist to sort it out. And it's caused an absolute riot. And everybody said, um, I didn't understand economics or physics, <laughs> which is probably right. And uh, there was a long discussion in the Financial Times about what was wrong with economics for about a month. It was quite funny.
0: <laughs> oh wow! And you are—you have always been in very interested in in the fields of business and economics. Apparently, right? I mean, uh, maybe you can give um, the listeners also. I mean, I introduced you to a little bit, but maybe you can give a little story of what you have been doing in the last um, last centuries um to to be the person to be the person you are today the last century it sounds terrible doesn't it yes <laughs> no i i mean that's it's exactly i mean we have a lot of very very young listeners who look for for leaders that have been in business for for more than three five years right i mean that's something where we can learn a lot about leadership and yeah. building teams and it's it's very very nice I, I i like dealing with young listeners actually i
1: i i have um Two or three um, undergraduates from Oxford every year to do mm-hmm. research skills training, um, and yeah. now I've now I've got four grandchildren, <laughs> two of whom <them laughs> is three and one of whom is six. <laughs> oh well, wow.
0: so, so there's the young, lots of lots of stuff uh, ahead.
1: They're my youngest son, yeah, but um, no, I, I, I basically um, <laughs> my career was rather strange actually because um, my father was a watchmaker and he used to read this right wing paper in the UK called the Daily Telegraph which has got even more right wings in a sense. Um, and that, said, that paper said um, young, bright students should go into science if they want to succeed. So I went into science and read physics. <laughs> and uh, then I thought I, I, I wasn't quite bright enough to be a research scientist, and I thought it wasn't that exciting. I mean, everyone was very excited about nuclear physics in mm-hmm. 1965. Um, so I went into the computer industry and uh, learn programming um, mm-hmm. and that that was very you know, and we the first pro- machines we programmed were valve machines you know okay <laughs> you what's that you've never even heard of them <laughs> no <laughs> yes <laughs> well, they have things like a light bulb which uh, affect how current passes through them and, and that gives you the basis of a computer and they were as big as a room <laughs> and oh, it, you know they're like a light bulb if one went wrong the whole thing collapsed uh, <laughs> so what was
0: the what was the what was the programming language called?
1: Oh, I used um, Leo three Intercode. Um, okay. Uh, i used Then then we then IBM quickly brought in the IBM three hundred and sixty range. I used IBM assembler, Leo mm-hmm. one, Fortran, COBOL. Um, I, I joined a software house, and they used to tell people that um, their programmers could do anything. And if you went on to, if you started a client on Monday morning, you didn't know the language. They gave you the manual to read over the weekend. Oh, wow. (laughs) And you turned up and said, yes, I can do this. But uh, it was was quite interesting. And we had to do all our testing overnight in these big mainframe computers. So we used to commute around London in taxis between computer bureaus carrying our punch cards. And uh, (laughs) it was good fun
0: crazy and then and then after that you immediately went to kpmg with the knowledge of like the the programming part or? no no
1: no i spent 9 years i i, I decided that some um, the pro i mean i, I went on them um, most of the most of the projects i worked on failed mainly because they were properly well designed okay. um, so i worked for 5 years in programming departments and um, i was always parachuted in to try to bail out a project that was in trouble so I decided that the management consultants were the people that understood um, how business should work. So I joined a management consultancy um, called Robson Morrow, and they had a, a, an association with Deloitte. But after two years, they went bankrupt because they took on a big computer project, which failed. <laughs> no,
0: just one and, project
1: <laughs> So um, Deloitte took them over, and I spent uh, another seven years with Deloitte, so 1969. Um, and that that was that was extremely interesting. And I worked on the comp- I, I went in, I went into a big um, project at London Stock Exchange, which had failed mm-hmm. and uh, we uh, on the interfirm firm accounting and we turned that around. And over seven years, we got the basis of the um, London Stock Exchange uh, systems working. Uh, mm-hmm. And I set up the first database for um, securities <laughs> in in London. That was in the and, stock
0: exchange, or
1: in the stock exchange, yeah. Okay. And um, and and the machine which ran the whole, all the systems for the um, at London stock exchange had 256 k
0: bytes. It was
1: a, <laughs> <laughs> it's more, you know, smaller than your calculator. Now, right, right. They're very funny. So anyway, I then um, uh, I then left and joined Thompson McClintock because there was an opportunity to to found a new computer consultancy for them.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I thought it would be nice to start from scratch.
0: What does computer consultancy mean? Does that mean like IT projects or was it more like uh, actually uh, educating employees to, to use computers or what, how, how, how can I imagine? It, it was mainly um,
1: specifying what people wanted and procuring something and then managing the implementation mm-hmm. um, for the first year, I spent sorting out pro- projects already in progress that were in in pro- problems. <laughs> what, what, what I discovered at that time was you can earn far more if somebody's in trouble than um, and helping them avoid trouble. <laughs> right. But people are always prepared to pay um, You know, when they have a disaster, like when their car breaks down, they'll pay you a lot. Mm-hmm. But they won't pay you a lot for maintaining it. <laughs> right, right. It's a very, very interesting
0: psychology. But- maybe to 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 interrupt you because I thought yeah you, sure. it's, it's very interesting here because you just said you you went through a lot of failures in the process um, was it only product based like okay you, you, they choose the wrong pr- uh, process and uh, they choose the wrong um, consultancy project and of course it failed or was it also a perspective or a, a failure based on 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 leadership or uh, that people did not work really good good together or what was the reason behind it
1: well, I mean, nearly always a failure of computer projects is a failure to agree exactly what you want <laughs> to start <laughs> with and then changing your mind as you see as you get more into it yeah. and and the supplier not really being flexible enough to, um, to actually adapt the system to what, what it turns out you do want rather than what you thought you wanted. Um, and also a lot of suppliers, you know, take advantage of that. I mean, I work with one big outsourcing company and on the wall, they had these posters for their own staff saying changes mean dollars. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> so every time, <laughs> every time somebody had a, very, you know, the thing is, the thing is when you compete for a project, you know, there might be four companies and people beat you down to a price. Okay. Mm-hmm. Once you've got it and they've spent several million pounds with you, <laughs> Right. Um, and they say, I want something different. You can name your price because they can't get somebody else to do it. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. They, and uh, so I know a lot of consultancies and uh, outsourcers get very rich on that
0: principle. Makes sense. Interesting. Um, hopefully it's not too loud here. You can hear maybe uh, German Yeah, no, no,
1: no, no, we have Sarah. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> this is all ancient history. <laughs> so, right. Um, Interesting. Yeah.
0: And then you went to KPMG to really transform businesses on a management consultancy basis or…
1: Well, no, what happened was I, I joined this um, company, Thompson McClintock, which mm-hmm. later became part of KPMG. Right. And I was there for eight years, so 79 to 87. Setting, and I built their, cons, their IT consultancy to about 80 people. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. And then we merged with Pete Marwick to form KPMG. Okay. Makes so sense. we were already in an organization <laughs> called KMG. Kleinfeld Kleinfeld Main Girdler, which was the biggest accounting and consulting firm in Europe. And then we merged with Pete Marwick, which is one of the large American companies.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. um, to form KPMG. Kleinfeld Main.
0: Okay, so you were actually You were actually at the beginning of KPMG's entry into the market as a KPMG name, right? I mean Yes, yes, yes. And there were
1: lots of arguments about it. Because all the Pete Marwick people said, well, Pete Marwick is such a famous name. We don't want to be called KPMG. So for a long time, it was called KPMG
0: Pete Marwick. Mm-hmm. Just to have both names in it. And um, Yes. Interesting. What have you learned from from merging? I mean, that's something that that's over the top, um, something where people just come together. There are two company names combining um, to be now one of or probably the most famous um consultancy firm especially also in uh, tax consultancy parts um what how has that been uh, back then right i mean uh, just merging two companies that are somehow maybe competitors bring them together um how has how has that felt like well the thing
1: about partnerships is that they don't really you know all the partners are judged on their own chargeable hours mm-hmm. so they tend to work very much in their own little silos right um so the job I had to do in KPMG, working for a guy um, based in um, in Chicago called Tom Moser, who headed the high technology practice worldwide. I had to bring the European practice together. Mm-hmm. So we had twenty three companies in the European practice, and uh, and we you know we used to fly around Europe having meetings in the. We used to go to Munich a lot because Munich was a high tech center mm-hmm. of Germany. And uh, so we had lots of good meetings there. Um, But um, I mean, uh, I think where we we actually started to be successful was um, when people started like to privatise telecommunications, um, you know, the national telecommunications practice. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And people couldn't bid for those jobs because they didn't have the resources. So we would fly in a team um, and we would stay like for a, a week and put together a bid um to, to take you know private something and we worked a lot on the far program i don't mm-hmm. know if you ever heard of the far program it was I'm initiated right. by the european commission mm-hmm. um, we worked i did a lot of work with the european commission okay really like them um which is not a fashionable view in the uk of course but um <laughs> not and anymore now. no they had they had this program that um they would award consultancy contracts to go and work, like in them um, in Bulgaria, and upgrade mm-hmm. the telecoms uh, infrastructure there. Okay. So in 1992, I took a team of 12 into Sofia to work for Bulgarian Telecommunications, mm-hmm. and uh, we we were working with the World Bank and the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, and a number of private developers. And uh, it
0: was very, very exciting, very interesting. Oh, I can imagine. I mean, uh, how how was maybe like a, because I think a lot of startups, especially also, they try to be involved in politics more and more, right? I mean, us KPMG, of course, the name makes the movement possible to work together with big banks, with with policies, uh, with the politics, um, and with the politics side how like what do you think is important to merge politics and business especially now in an era where there's a lot of dynamics happening uh, where young startups come from the bottom there the those big corporates staying at the top how how do you think will politics and business more and more be of relevance in the future or do you think it will be uh, more di- more uh, more or less distance from each other uh, politics and, and the business side
1: well, I, I, I think it should be more, I think people should know their roles better. Mm-hmm. Actually. Um, I think the real problem with a lot of, um, of politics, and I think you see this with Trump in particular, yep. is that politicians see themselves as the hero CEO mm-hmm. you know, that can take decisions. I think it's much better when they have, you know, a civil service or, you know, some, you know, a part, and the uh, administrative part of the, their administration that actually does things, that they set the policy. Mm-hmm. Because now in the UK, um, um, the, um, the ministers have special advisors and they advise them on how good the civil servants are. So civil servants tell them what they want to hear because they'll say they'll mm-hmm. get a good review from the advisors. Makes I sense. mean, Trump doesn't even bother to appoint people to head agencies like this problem with the FAA um mm-hmm. uh, not not coming out with a ruling on the Max eight quickly. They don't have a head because Trump tried to appoint his personal pilot um as head of the FAA and the FAA mm-hmm. pointed out that somebody that didn't ha whose own plane wasn't properly registered probably right. wasn't the right person to run the whole agency. Uh so <laughs> I mean I I I think I think people should actually get back to their, their proper roles. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and government should set policies and government should actually listen to civil servants. Like, um, I mean, it, in in the UK, on Brexit, the Treasury and the Bank of England said unequivocally, pretty quickly, after the vote, what the sort of effect on the economy was going to be. Right, And the politicians were, um, were, were deriding it and saying it was rubbish within days.
0: Mm-hmm just because you think it's a it's a knowledge problem or do you think um, it's just um, because people just don't want to don't want to be honest towards the society
1: i think they don't want to be honest
0: <laughs> okay and
1: i think i mean because it helps to be dishonest if you're fairly thick as well you don't mm-hmm. understand the problem
0: yeah that's correct i mean uh, that's a very, very interesting approach right i mean you what you can see is i think from a global standpoint that more and more <clears throat> Very individual leaders, they want to build up their leadership role and they want to influence a whole generation just by, by maybe misunderstanding, um, what they actually should yeah. do. Um, I, I think that's a very interesting analysis, but still, I mean, also Trump made it possible to merge millions of people to actually vote for him, right? I mean, that's a leadership skill that apparently he has, um, uh, whether it's critical or not, I'm definitely not a big fan of him, but um, not at all, but I think what he what he has made possible is to to bring together millions of people to vote for him, which is quite eccentric and weird in that regard. But what do you think from a leadership perspective? because you have seen uh, you've worked with different teams, um, you have seen the 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 analysis of how people actually work. When you lead them, what have you learned from your perspective on leading people, on leading teams, and um, and uh, leading quality uh, instead of quantity?
1: Well, I think
0: there's an exact
1: parallel between business and politics. Like, if you tell, I mean, like if you're selling a computer system, Mm -hmm. if you tell somebody this is going to be very cheap. Going to save mm-hmm. you a lot of money, and we can put it in very quickly, and it'll solve all the problems you've got on stock control, on customer service. At the moment, people buy it.
0: You
1: right. know, there's no, you know. But then, then, then the problems start. And Trump is exactly the same. Trump saying, "I'm going to bring back your your um, your jobs, your steel working jobs, your coal mining jobs. You yeah. know, I'm going to make you richer. I'm going to take away this bureaucracy. I'm going to drain the swamp." Uh, excuse me. No worries. Hello.
0: <laughs> that's uh, that's authentic yeah. in podcasting. That's allowed. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: No, I mean, you know, I, I think it's the same. But you know, you can and tr- you know, This is what my article on trust was about <laughs> as mm-hmm. well. Um, that you know, it's nice to have these pseudo solutions once or twice or three times but eventually mm-hmm. people get tired of them, you know, and you can, you can give somebody a solution which isn't a solution once and right. they might accept your excuse the first time. They might accept your excuse the second time. Right. But eventually they're going to see a pattern in this. And, and I think, you know, eventually this would um, bring Trump down. But, um, you know, I mean, populism is a very dangerous concept. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. you, you've actually seen, you know, the other aspects of it. They start to blame minorities and, you know, they stir up hatred. Um, and it, it's, a, it's a very unpleasant process, I think, actually.
0: Right. And, I mean, the States is not the only country that's going towards such a such a movement, right? <laughs> exactly. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> um, so,
1: I, I don't know. I mean, I think all responsible people have <laughs> responsibility to try to bring things back.
0: Um, yeah, that's a- that's also a big chance i think for the young generation i mean if we look at the brexit i mean the, uh, generally you can say that the young generation was actually uh, in favor of not um of not leaving europe um, and um, it's definitely something that's been proven i think over the last over the last months but um you just mentioned your your fantastic article on trust right i mean i think i you wrote it together with uh, the london school of economics which is uh, very famous for its um excellent uh, education. Uh, maybe you can give you can you give a little insight on, on the article? Well, um, I actually I, I wrote it with an Oxford undergraduate. I was at
1: Oxford and okay. um, and it was published by the London School of Economics Business blog that they published quite a lot of my articles. I've written books on <laughs> articles on the future of work and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so anyway, I mean, I have a lot of time for them, but I actually I actually work did it with, um, with Isabel Stanley, who's, um, and I think she's a 19 or 20 year old undergraduate doing okay. philosophy and psychology at Oxford. Um, and we, we based it around a series of films by, um, a British documentary filmmaker, Adam Curtis, mm-hmm. who wrote, who, who had this series of films called A Century of Self. Okay. And he traced, the origins of the public relations industry back to this uh, guy, Edward Bernays, who was a nephew of Freud, the famous psychologist, the famous Austrian psychologist, mm-hmm. um, who invented psychoanalysis. Um, and Bernays' insight, his brilliant insight, was that you don't sell somebody a car by saying you know, it does these miles a gallon and it's going to last you 12 years and all this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You 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 sell it to him by saying, This is gonna make you feel great.
0: <laughs> you, know, <laughs>
1: you know, you this is gonna pull in the you know, the young ladies or the young men or whatever. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, you know, And and he sold cigarettes to American women um by saying this will make them feel powerful. Um and they, they you know they could they could stay around when the men were smoking cigars and they, they would look um mm-hmm. impressive. Uh and so, so eventually, so he moved the whole basis of advertising to mm. psychology. And this was so successful in business, the politicians picked it up. Okay. Then, um, and and then he also extended it into saying, well, actually, you know, why, why tell people a policy that they might not like? Why not find out what they like and then tell them that? So this is the <laughs> basis <laughs> of the focus group. All right. <laughs> You know, um, so 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 basically, the whole uh, and, and uh, you really should watch these films. It's called The Century of Self, and there's Century four of self. one-hour series. Okay. Uh, I, I think Adam Curtis is absolutely brilliant filmmaker, mm-hmm. um, and it tells. Um, the, the, uh, well, I can go into a lot more detail, but I, but I won't now. But sure. um, go it, ahead. It is well. It's it's really uh, basically one of his theories is that. They interviewed a lot of the Nazis after the Second World War, and they found they still had this very cohesive strategy. They still were very loyal. Mm-hmm. So they went to the psychologists and said, "Well, how do we break this down?" And they said, "Well, it's by extreme individualism. You want to try. You want to manage the population so they all feel they're competing with each other, so they'll so they'll never form these very strong cults." <laughs> right. Um, again. And this is, you know, this is one of the reasons. Apparently, the Americans, um, and they had they had American, um, like the Rand Corporation, this big think tank that works the American government, mm-hmm. um, and they came out with these very pessimistic theories um, of, of human nature, mm-hmm. and they tried it out on on the women secretaries, and the women secretaries all came out with a, anomalous results because the women secretaries wouldn't take very rational and pessimistic decisions because they were more human based. It's, it's actually fascinating. But, oh, but anyway, wow. Adam Curtis is a very interesting guy. Anyway, mm-hmm. I said to Isabel, you've got to um, to look at how this connects up with fake news and the internet and, and, and the web, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, how this has actually been turbocharged. And of course, it has been turbocharged, because the messages um, and things that you, that, you know, I can make sure you see on Facebook. I can calibrate to your prejudices. You know, right. so I, I know if, if you belong to this organization and you vote for this and you buy this product, I can say, oh well, you know, he might be left-wing or he might be, you know, very conservative. Mm-hmm. So, you, so, you, so I then feed you stories which will strengthen um, your prejudices and, and, and weaken some of your um, your criticisms. Mm-hmm. You know, of the opposition. Uh, so, so this is a very dangerous
0: tool. Um, mm. Do you think it's given but, by, by social networks? Do you think social networks are more or less like the fundamental ground to actually make that possible? Or do you think it's just a, a cultural step that people have gone towards? Well, I think it's partly based <laughs> on the asymmetry
1: of technology, the way it's developed, you know, the, the big companies... Um, have, have the monopoly of power and they have centralized data mm-hmm. and then they can, they can work on, on these advertising and manipulative techniques. Wow. Um, but you know, um, Tim Berners-Lee, the guy who invented the World Wide Web, mm-hmm. has a new project, which is very exciting, called SOLID, um, which will mean that you, Max Elsa, can keep all your data together Mm-hmm. And just license it to people to use, you know. So you uh, can let your doctor see something, or you can let your bank manager see something, but no one can aggregate all your metadata and uh, uh, and use it to manipulate your opinion.
0: So do you anyway. think? Do you think that's going to be of relevance? Because now I think, I mean, that's an interesting discussion now. Because I think there are also people who say that we are now like more in an open source. Uh, world where everything is going to be shared. We live in a mobile world where my car is shared, my, my scooter is shared, everything is shared. My data is shared in order to get me the most relevant information based on my data preferences or my preferences that I have. Do you think that's going to, that's going to go in a different direction where people can really have a licensed ecosystem where all the data that I have collected over the years and uh, that that is part of me uh, is not going to be shared more like in an open source tool um, I, I i don't know how it will
1: settle down i think there is a big asymm- asymmetry at the moment mm-hmm. i think that will get matched up but but i mean the whole of life you know is shifting isn't it shifting balance of power right um and uh, i mean i mean i mean that the whole history of computing has has been centralization decentralization centralization mm-hmm. etc um, and uh, i mean people have have you know people talk about data as a new oil and all this kind of thing don't they um, right. and and i mean you could bring in a law why why couldn't you bring in a law to say all the data about me as a person i have the ultimate copyright on right right it you should know. be right yeah so so i so i can withdraw permission you to use it including mm-hmm. my, my pictures and all that kind of thing I mean right. <clears throat> it might be very hard to um, um, to enforce and and of course companies would, would see their way around it because they would say well will you give us permission or you know or we won't give you discounts on these products and things mm-hmm. like that I mean companies <laughs> are pretty smart as all that kind of thing right, right. so right. But you might get some kind more of a, of a balance. Um, I mean, perhaps perhaps it's going to go for a global village, you know, like, you know, the idea that once everyone lived in a village of 100 people and everybody knew everything about everybody Mm -hmm. else. Right. Now the global village is 8 billion people. (laughs) (laughs)
0: And we still know everything about everybody else, right, if we really (laughs) look into the detail. Yeah. Nothing uh, has really changed.
1: I to read it
0: all. <laughs> right, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. No, but I think that's an interesting, interesting discussion where it's going to lead. Right. I mean, it's part of all this whole future of work discussion where people just work in a more collaborative way, where information is shared to have just better access to information. Uh, I think you are one of one of the one of one of the thought leaders in the UK who's writing about future of work and and the different elements of it. Um, from from your experiences in the past, but also from a view to the future, what do you think? How is the future of work going to look like? Um, I mean, there are different different opinions about that because of our AI, artificial intelligence. People are going to work less. People are going to have more time for for hobbies and different uh, things that they that they really like. Uh, what do you think? Where's the the future of work heading? What's your opinion on that?
1: Well, I, I mean, I wrote an article for New states <coughs> statesman, on this. Um, excuse me the interesting thing is certainly work has changed and and you know the people that were the sort of work people did even in the 1960s 1970s just doesn't exist anymore Mm -hmm. um but everybody is still very busy I don't meet anyone that isn't extremely busy you know we, we have we have an enormous amount of things to do it was like when word processing came out when 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 you had a typewriter people used to write a manuscript copy then they had one copy typed up. They used to edit that, and they had a final copy. Nowadays, with word processing, you might mm-hmm. go through how many drafts. You know, so so work kind of expands, uh, and um, you know, people hold more meetings now. You know, if you go into any you know bank in the city, you, know, you can never get hold of anyone because they're all in meetings. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I and I, I talked to the people in a big IT department a few weeks ago, and and I was saying well, why do you outsource, you know, have consultants in? And he said, well, you know, we don't have any time to do any work. <laughs> we're, in, we're in so many meetings. So they spend all their time in meetings choosing consultants uh, to do their work. So I I don't, I mean, I think, and, and the point is, there is still lots of work to do. I mean, in terms of education, healthcare, social care, there aren't enough people to do the work. Mm there really aren't. I mean, but we have a disjointed society now that we don't pay enough for those those services, probably. Right. Um, but if we gradually reorientate, um, I mean, I, th- I think the big growth area, you know, is is health and, and social care and mm-hmm. and, lo- and looking after children. I mean, um, it, it's very interesting that it's something I, I see more of now, you know, now I'm a grandparent, I've got all these little kids. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, and, and I was a governor of a school recently. And in the UK, okay. if, if a child is very unmanageable, we exclude them from school. Mm-hmm. But now we have a problem in gangs because guess what? The excluded kids, you know, all gather together and uh, they do things that people don't like.
0: <laughs> right,
1: right. In gangs. So I, I, I think there is a lot of work. And also, I think people will go... I mean, if you if you go into affluent areas like in the States and in Europe and that kind of thing, you find that people don't want mass produced articles in their homes, they want craft products,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, and, yeah. and they want pictures, they want paintings, you know, and they want perhaps little sculptures and then they want pottery and all this kind of thing, you right. know, and, and, they, and they, they don't want to go and just buy a hamburger from a, a mass chain, they want right. to go to a nice little cafe you know and most of these things aren't scale that, that serves fresh food mm-hmm. most of these things aren't scalable right you know? right um so i i i see that this this is the way the economy will will develop i hope it will develop like that
0: more into like an individual um ecosystem <laughs> where everybody can find what he or she is uh, interested in in that part in that second
1: yeah and get you know people People say, oh, well, we've, we've got rid of all the jobs like in steel and coal mining. But those weren't nice jobs. Those, mm-hmm. those jobs destroyed lives, you know. Right. And and in the big bureaucracies, in offices, <clears throat> it wasn't great fun. And it wasn't right. great fun, you know, preparing punch cards for a big computer system. You know, I mean, they say, oh, we've lost those jobs. But, but those weren't nice jobs. So it you
0: was, also you believe... You also believe in the in the movement that people or jobs will the, the 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 not interesting jobs will more or less be eliminated and people will have the chance to really work in fields that they are interested in healthcare social change uh, and and the different elements that bring society further as a whole. That's
1: what I hope. That's what I hope. <laughs> but we've right. got to solve this problem about capitalism. <laughs> capitalism mm-hmm. is very efficient, but it's
0: very mm-hmm. efficient
1: at channeling capital to the top this is why we see that 86 people control half the world's capital now you know a lot of people don't have any capital or they're in debt and they don't have a secure house um Mm -hmm. dwelling and all that kind of thing and they can't then provide for their children's education and you know a stable environment we've got to solve this problem of how to look after everybody um because otherwise you'll get massive dissatisfaction i think that's that's what Trump capitalizes on, because right. if you look at the blue collar workers, and if you be, read people like Robert Reich or Joan Williams in America, these sociologists, uh-huh. they will tell you that the people in Detroit's livelihood was destroyed. You know, the the, the you know the foreman in General Motors who earned fifty five dollars, you know, an hour, uh-huh. or fifty five thousand dollars, fifty five thousand dollars a year. Um, and had good health care and good pension prospects, more we'll get a free GM car or a cheap GM car every few years. Yeah, he was a respected member of society. Right. Then, then his benefits were taken away. In real terms, his salary is the same. You know, he may, may, may now be working in Mississippi or somewhere like that um, if, he's, if he's moved or he may be out of work. You know, look what's happened to Detroit, Detroit, mm-hmm. destroyed. you know, and, and Seattle. Boeing has moved a lot of the jobs right. to you know South Carolina, where they can be, make the Dreamliners, you know, for five dollars an hour cheaper than they right. can in Seattle because they're not unionized. Right. So, so we've got to solve some of those problems. I mean, I think Germany has been better than most at
0: solving them. True, and. Yeah. And we still have a lot of people complaining about processes in the job industry, right? Because you can never be perfect. And it's, um, it's a, it's a philosophical question on how to solve all those problems. And I think people probably need to take one step at a time and really build maybe really make the, 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 the environment around everybody better to go into like more the global, global part. I mean, um, it's a very interesting discussion. I think we could also talk about it in, in several hours and really discuss how we can go into detail. It's super interesting to chat about it with you. Um, in yes. respect, in respect of the time, maybe we go into like yes. the last, the last, last Q and A session, which we always do. Is there like one, one certain book that you would recommend um, uh, for for the listeners? One book uh, that that has, has inspired you and and others. Maybe one that you have um, given as a as a gift to friends and family for, uh, members or whatever.
1: Oh, uh, yeah, there's a, here's one I'm reading now. Um, Michael Lewis is the fifth
0: risk. <laughs> the fifth risk. Yes. OK, um, cool.
1: Michael Lewis, you know, he's the guy that wrote the big shorts and all that. Kind of oh, of yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah. A yeah.
1: very interesting book. And it's not very well known. My wife gave it to me at Christmas. But <clears throat> but basically it's about how Trump is destroying the basis of the American government. Mm hmm.
0: Um,
1: it's it's really fascinating and it really is serious I, you know it, it may sound rather obscure <laughs> but but I would recommend that the, the young people do read it because it actually you know what it says is we need these public servants you know that work you know in in the FBI or they work in the weather bureau and they mm. you know they don't get enormous salaries but they, they right. but they're the bedrock of society and um or they work in the FAA and if you if you destroy that um, the whole of society starts to fall apart. It's a really interesting book. Um, oh, no, I will. Um, I will put that into the show notes. Fifth risk. <laughs> the, the other one I really like is um, there's an American um, lawyer called William. Uh, it's uh, Charles Morris, that's right. Who okay. Who wrote the two trillion dollar crash? Mm-hmm. And um, it, it's about how um, how the how the financial crash came about. And I, I read about 30 books on the crash. And this is the best one. It's not that long, okay. Um, uh, but it actually, you know, gives you, it explains all the alphabet soup. And, it, and it's, uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> so anyway, I, I hope those are not too heavyweight things that people. No,
0: fantastic. No, yeah. I think that's definitely uh, a, and,
1: and, and watch, watch the Adam Curtis film, Century of Self.
0: But right, right. I will definitely also put them to the in the in the description. I think there's lots of stuff to uh, to jump upon after the podcast. <laughs> um, too much. Maybe, uh, <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm sure people are interested in, in getting more yeah. resources. So that's, it's always great to have new books, uh, be in the line. Um, what, what's, um, do you have like a certain routine that, that has helped you to, to always hold the passion? Is, is it your morning, uh, morning coffee? Is it something else that you do every day that keeps you, um, that keeps you sharp for the day?
1: No, I'm, I'm totally inconsistent, as, as my <laughs> wife will <would> tell you. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, we we, we we do get up fairly early, and uh, but um, I, I, I like I like to vary my life and, and do quite a bit because you know, I, I work at home quite a lot, but then then I have these you know eager people in the city that want to meet me for breakfast at eight o'clock, mm. and uh, we occasionally do meetings at eight o'clock. Uh, so I think things like that. And uh, last week, my 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 daughter had her her second baby, so we had to babysit for her her other toddler. So okay. we had to get up at six o'clock in the morning to look after that, which is quite difficult for old people like us. <laughs> <laughs> You're <not laughs> old. after little three year olds. <laughs> but anyway, it's great fun. No, I I think plenty of variety, and 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 to keep on reading actually. Mm-hmm. um and uh, perhaps uh, have a partner who always questions what you say, so you never get complacent.
0: <laughs> right, right. Fantastic. I love that. That's a that's a great finish. what uh, thanks for your time. Thanks for the great great talk about um, what's happening uh, in in so- society, is what we can do to make it better. How how the, the future of work looks like. Um, really appreciate the time. Thanks for 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 the for the great chat and um, ha- wish you a great week.
1: <laughs> it was really enjoyable. Thanks a lot, Max. Okay, bye-bye.